dark shadows of skyscrapers are falling across New York as an elderly white-haired priest leaves the reassuring comfort of his home, heads through the streets toward the apartment block where the others are waiting. He walks quite slowly, carrying a small black case filled with the essential paraphernalia of the ritual he is about to perform. The room has been prepared to his precise instructions, cleaned, sprinkled with holy water, stripped of movable objects, of those now gathered inside only the priest, his face drawn and solemn, has any idea what to expect, or rather who to expect. After 30 years as an exorcist, Father Malachi Martin has learned to recognize the nature of the demons he pursues. They may be ingenious or stupid, coarse or charming, brazen or craven, Hell, it seems, is no place for stereotypes. I need to know who they are, their names, and their stories. Father Martin is Irish-born. Father Martin was in the Vatican, advised two popes, and I would like to let him tell you about himself. Father Martin, uh, welcome to the program. It's an honor to have you. Good morning, Art. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know that... Uh... I feel very privileged to be speaking to your audience because it's a special audience. You, uh, you're in Manhattan. You live in Manhattan. That's right, I do, in the middle of Upper, B, Upper East Side. Um, have you lived there all your life, Father? Yes, I have. The, uh, I came over here in January 1965, and I've lived on the Upper East Side ever since then. At the present moment, it's clothed in darkness and quiet. Huh. It's a mild atmosphere. It's been a lovely spring day, really. And um, everything is quiet. There are no sirens. Everything is in peace, seemingly. In peace. Um, maybe those are the moments to watch out for <laughs> when everything is seemingly in peace. Uh, the uh, the old expression of the calm before the storm. Who knows? Yes, and uh, besides that, it's... Uh, is the general public peace very well kept from the point of view of police work and very clean enough for, for a city that's reputable as dirty but there are rooms and halls and basement chapels and small little dark corners where human agonies are lived out in Father, why would you choose to live in such a big bustling dirty, difficult city when you could have at any time in your adult life gone to a, a soft Midwestern town uh, where things are uh, moving a little slower. As was I tempted heart, I was going to live in Cincinnati. I was going to live in North Carolina. I was going to go to Santa Fe, that beautiful city. Uh, I was going to go to Texas. I was upon a time I was planning even to migrate to uh, some place like uh, Southern California. But every time that there were plans even remotely forming in that regard, uh, it became imperative that I stay just for another short time. I'm still staying, staying for another short time. Uh, so, uh... My life, my life is being governed by events, and I regard events as created by God the Father. 
So it may turn out that you will be there for forever. Uh, it will turn out, Arthur. You're quite right. At least the physical forever. Father, would you move just away away from your phone a little bit? Yes, I'm puffing my P's and B's probably. Yes, you are, and, and that's much better. Good. Yes, I'm, could, do not hesitate to correct me, Art. Oh, uh, no, that's much better, Please. Father. Um, Father, if you wouldn't mind... Yes. Um, Describe a little bit of your history. I, I, obviously, you've been doing exorcisms for 30 years. I know you've advised two popes. Yes, but yes. your history in the church generally. Well, my history in the church generally was that I became, at 18, I entered a, Jesuit, a religious order called the Jesuits in Ireland. The war had just broken out. It was 8th of September, 1939. And um, I went through the basic training of two years. And believe me, it was a basic training. They shaved your head and took away your nice clean clothes and gave you old patched clean clothes and took away your bill cream and your eau de cologne. And they put you to bed at about a quarter to ten and got you up at a quarter to five and fed you like a gamecock. And you didn't study one book for two years. They concentrated on training your will and analyzing it. And they cut your will down this. They, they dissected it into its component parts and examined it and found out if they could live with it mm -hmm. and could you conform yes. to the rules. And if so, then they sort of fused those parts together with an ideology and then shot you out like a missile to study and to labor and to work. Father, uh, that's very interesting. What you have just described, uh, I'm sure, is uh, uh, was even tougher than certainly what I went through. I was in the Air Force, and I went uh -huh. through basic training at Lackland. Uh -huh. And their job was to almost try and break you. Uh, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. In other words, yes, they yes. would instill in you discipline, and if you could not conform, you were out of there. You had to go. I know. It's the same, it was the same thing, basically, in basic training. For instance, the first job I had, uh, it was always physical labor with an amount of spiritual reading and contemplation. The first physical job I had, I was cleaning 300 glasses tumblers, you know, for drinking sure. uh, water. Sure. And uh, have you ever tried to clean 300 glasses by hand? No dishwasher. This is all done by hand. Uh. And in the middle of that labor, uh, it was a labor, the, a young novice, like me, but a second year man, came in and said, Brother Martin, you need it outside in the garden. So, usefully, I went outside in the garden and I was given a hoe. And the pads were grown with moss. And I was ordered to clean that. And in the middle of that, uh, Brother Walsh, the master of works, the other novice, came and said, uh, uh, Brother Martin, what are you doing here? I said, I'm hoeing the moss. He said, didn't I tell you to clean the glasses this morning? And of course, my first reaction was, yes, but yes, I told a mistake. Yes. Because they wanted to get you to the point that they said, jump out that window. You didn't say how high it was. You jumped. You just jumped. Uh, and it, was it a form of breaking? It was a form of getting you to abdicate your own will once you accept the conditions and do as you were told. Or even mind control. It's a strong phrase, but that's really what it is. Yes, it is. And it was really, they were training your will. Because the mind, they left the mind almost go fallow. You never studied for two years. Having studied intensively until I was 18, to get all my exams and matriculation, and studying Hebrew and Greek and Latin and geography and math and physics and logic and 
history and geography, the whole gamut of things we used to learn in school those days, they let everything go fallow. You read spiritual books, yes, but no, you learned nothing uh, intellectual. So they let the mind go fallow? Yes, but the mind was working all the time. The mind was working all the time. You were appraising and appreciating and accepting the ideology, the outlook. And the result was when after two years they gave you your first vows, poverty, celibacy, and obedience, you were rearing to go. Rearing to go. I remember the first night, the night before we took those final, those first vows, I couldn't sleep with excitement. I heard that clock in the hall downstairs tolling a quarter of an hour and half hours and hours. Any doubts? None. None? Never. Never. Not a doubt. A great joy, great enthusiasm, a great happiness, and greater, a great sans attack, as the French say, a great let me get at it, let me do my work, let me, let me go, let me work. So by that time, you knew that you could, you absolutely knew that you could um, devote your entire life as you were about to vow to do. That's right. That's right. And they, they bred into you something else, which only started then, and it took years to achieve. And we used to call it indifference. Uh, it meant this, that, uh, all right, we all have inclinations, sensual and sexual and intellectual and social. We're attracted by this and repelled by that. But you must cultivate, you must come to the point that you are not attracted in such a way that it commands your attention and your devotion. You must be indifferent. And sure, if you lose your parents in, in, in death, Everybody is sorrow, uh, sorry, and so are you. But it does not destroy your devotion. It doesn't stop you working. You get up in the morning, you have a bad headache, you still go to work. Uh, you see a very beautiful woman, you acknowledge her beauty, but you're not attracted to it lasciviously or, or merely with desire to be with her. And similarly with food and drink. And everything pleasant and nice was to be used with that indifference, that... Uh, you're not finally under the control of anything that attracts the senses or the mind. Well, that, that's, I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not big enough, I guess. I can't even conceive of that, how one can get to the point where one can look at a beautiful woman and not, uh, as a man, as, as, a, as a man, a human, be affected. Uh, or be affected, yes, but not desire to the extent of uh, chasing after it, going after it, or wanting to uh, form an alliance of marriage, or whatever. No, no, be, be attractive. You can't kill the natural tendency. But uh, you were taught to be indifferent to it, that it did not command your loyalty. Mm -hmm. And all that you did for the love of God. You had a motivation. Um, how does a young Jesuit get from that point to the Vatican. I mean, what kind of road is that? The road in my case, I'm sure it varies with every individual, but the road in my case was simply that at a certain age of 21, 21 and a half, my superior said, we want you to train in Semitic languages because those are the languages in which the Bible was written, mainly Hebrew and Aramaic. Sure. But there are other allied languages that are useful, like Pharaonic Egyptian, and Syriac, and uh, South Semitic, and Arabic, etc., and Abyssinian, or Ethiopian, as we used to call it then. So they sent me to university, and I studied it for four years. 
And at the end of that, they said, all right, now you must study philosophy. So then they sent me to a school of philosophy for three years, and it was nothing but rational philosophy, period. And after that, they said, well, now we want to find out, can you teach? So they sent me teaching little boys, French and Greek, little boys within the ages of 12 and 14, mm -hmm. for three years. And then they said, okay, now you must do theology. So they gave me four years theology in Belgium, uh, where there was nothing but theology, morning, noon, and night, in an international house. And then they said after that, okay, now you must get a doctorate in Semitic languages, Oriental art, and history. And then they gave me four years of that. And at that point, then they said, all right, you are now posted to the Vatican to teach there as a philosopher, well, Father, as, a, as a professor. Father, were you at some point, I mean, obviously, uh, there are so many Jesuits, and somebody at some point must have looked at you or put their hand on you and said, you have a special path to follow, even within the church, and, and started you down that particular path. Yes. You see, every month in the old system, it's changed now with the Jesuits, but in the old system, every month the superior, the local superior, sent in a speculum. What they call a speculum. A speculum is the Latin for mirror. It's a report on Brother X, Brother Martin, Brother Kelly, Brother whoever he is, each one. And those are put together according as you advance year after year within the order. And at the end of it all, they call you in and say, listen, this is what people have been saying about you all along. We, this, the, the decisions in your regard were made on account of these facts, and they were account of what every superior had said about you. And it's that accumulation of facts and a profile, what we now call a profile. We didn't call it a profile then. We called it a speculum, a mirror of the man. Uh, it, that is what inclines them to mark you out as useful. And, of course, their, their use of you was always made in view of your talents. There were some men with me who were brilliant mathematicians but couldn't say bonjour. They couldn't learn a language. Yes. Uh, so they, they graded you according to your talents. And um, they found I had a, a capacious memory. I was hardly the hair. No problems with health ever. I could sleep on the floor. I could labor all day. I could live in little sleep. I didn't require much more than the normal intake of food. And I was dead keen on my work. And they could use those talents. But somebody had to see that. Oh, uh, yes, they did. A very early superior thought and wrote to Rome about it. To my, the major superior in Rome. I see. And they made that decision which passed down the line. In those days, Art, it's not the same today. In those days... There was one central hub in the Roman Catholic Church. It was the Vatican. And out of it, picturesquely, you can see it in your imagination, there ran pipes. Flowed uh, to everywhere. Father, hold on. Sure. We'll be right back to you. We're at the bottom of the hour. Back now ba uh, Back now to Father Malachi Martin. Uh, Father, are you uh, there? Of course. Okay. I've been listening fascinated because I find the, what you advertise is absolutely interesting. Well, it is. Um... I, I I don't know that it would all apply, for example, to Father Malachi Martin's case, but <laughs> not all. But interesting, it, nevertheless. <laughs> it tells me how the other half lives, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, That's or, also valuable to know. Art. Yes, it is. Um, uh, Father. Yes. I guess we're, we're trying an experiment here, folks, and we've got a kind of a little thing over the telephone trying to. Uh, Eliminate the pops and the peas and so forth, but yes. it seems to be moving around. So, 
How is it doing now? Now it's okay. As long as it's not moving around, it's fine. All right. All right. Keep I, after me. I think we're all right. Father, how old are you now? I'm 76. 76? Yes. How much longer are you going to continue to actively do what you do? As long as the good Lord gives me the strength and there's work to be done and people to be helped and people to be counseled and consoled and strengthened. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, the, the particular avocation that I follow, uh, the need for ministration in these matters has only increased. For instance, I've been working in the field of exorcism in the northeast corner since, uh, since 1970. I came over in 1965, but by 1970 I was hard at work. These occurrences and happenings, people needing uh, help, needing administration, counseling, needing exorcism, uh, the number, these mere numbers alone, the number has increased by about 800%. In what period of time, Father? It's since 1970. Since 1970. 800%. 800%. And then we have new phenomena that we never met that time, for instance. We now have a series of 20-somethings and 30-somethings, mainly men, but some women, but mainly young men, successful men in brokerage, in medicine, in science, in architecture, in politics, who come and say, look, Father, I wanted such and such a thing. I wanted a job. I wanted a salary. I wanted a position in this university. I wanted that lady, that woman. And I, I finally... In my desperation, I made a pact with the devil, and I got what I wanted, but now he won't let me go. Please help me. We never had that before. That's a very new phenomenon, and they're all 20-somethings and 30-somethings. Well, maybe we've... So, in other words, put simply, we've got a lot more people making bad deals. <laughs> That's right. Or put, uh, you know, from the half-full, half-empty image, uh, we've got a very, very active uh, Lucifer. And Satan, because they are distinct demons, by the way. But uh, that's something else. That's another story completely. But we have a very, very active uh, uh, demonic presence in our present, in the present configuration of American society. All right. I'm only speaking about America. Although I'm told, for instance, that there are eight active exorcists working in Rome and Milan. Because Milan, Turin, and Rome are afflicted with an awful lot of possessed people and exorcisable people. Um, all right, let's go back to basics. Please, 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 uh, somebody says, ask uh, uh, Father Martin if the Exorcist movie is not, in fact, based on incidents that occurred at St. Louis University, a Jesuit school in the early 70s. I'm a graduate of that school, and the folklore has it that there is an abandoned room at the, top, at the top of Duborg Hall, which was the site of an exorcism which ultimately culminated at St. Francis Xavier Church, Georgetown U, U, the home of the protagonist from The Exorcist, also happens to be a Jesuit school. Please ask him if there is any tie-in and if he has seen the room at Duborg Hall at SLU. Yes, uh, you're asking me that? Yes, sir. Yes, I have. And uh, did occur there. In fact, that exorcism was the landmark uh, uh, exorcism in America. And it's been published in a, in a repertorial form by a man called Thomas Allen, 
published by Doubleday a couple of years ago, and it's a harrowing story. It's a harrowing story because for, I think, for two years yes. or over, these two Jesuit priests, unknown to their confrères, their brethren in the same house, had to pursue this, this, this gruesome and awesome task of liberating a young man who was liberated completely. And uh, they, they, their brethren, their, co their colleagues, never knew anything about it. They just knew these two men were on special assignment. And the only sign the community had was at the very end, when it was all over. Uh, Jesuits at that time used to recite prayers at night, mainly the litany of the saints. And that night, when they finally uh, staggered home for the night prayers and it was all over, Inside, in the chapel, the community chapel where they were praying, there was a sudden lightsome vision of Michael the Archangel in triumph. Momentary, everybody saw it, and the, 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 the actual authors, uh, uh, the people who participated in that exorcism, said that the, the, their colleagues were all philosophers, men plunged in, in philosophic thought and scientific research, looked up and saw this magnificent spectacle, and couldn't make out what it all meant because they had had known nothing of they had known nothing about what was going on. Um, in you know the movie I saw the movie of course like everybody else did. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I assume there was some dramatic license with the pea green pea soup and all the rest of it. Yes, but tremendous, tremendous license. Because you know, uh, here's the point. Here's the difficulty. There is no way. There is no way you can convey to anybody who hasn't been through it. This very upsetting sensation of being in the presence of a possessing demon. The only parallel might be, I suppose, if you once faced certain death, unless something were to happen. Certainly. A wild animal, uh, ready to claw you to death, or a killer mm -hmm. about to execute you. Uh, but then, but you see, those don't even convey it because the, the dominant reaction the human frame, the human soul has in an exorcism is this. You know, but you know for certain that something out there hates you. Hates you personally. You are the object of hate. A lion about to tear you to bits merely wants a meal. And a killer, there's nothing personal. He wants to kill you for your money. In okay. modern America, that's probably right, unfortunately. That's right. So, I mean, there's nothing personal about it, really, except there's the odd personal crime of assassination, crime passionnel. But, uh, and there's hate there. But this, this is a peculiar thing. There's this, this demonic force, and you know it hates you and wants you dead, 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 then and there. Is it your... Uh, what is it that it hates of you? Is it your... Uh your faith uh, in God? Is it your relative purity? What does this demon, what does the devil hate? He hates the fact that you represent the power of Christ. Because you, you're only operating on that, with that strength. Uh, I have known people, unfortunately, psychiatrists, uh, very learned men, intelligent men, rich men, uh, mainly again men, not women. Women are far more cautious and far more primal in their instincts. But I've known men who have dared challenge the demon on their own strength. And they've always come off worse than second best. 
because uh, the demon knows when a priest is empowered to command us. And actually, Art, what happens in, in an exorcism is a series of commands. Uh, you never discuss anything with a demon. It's you command it. You command it. And everything must be in the form of a command. The demon says, oh, who are you? Why should I do anything you say? Tell me your name, please. Is it possible that an exorcist can lose? Yes. And that's a dreadful sight. Because then they have to, by uh, severe methods, penance and fasting and prayer, they've got to shake loose the demonic influence. Remember in the Gospels, there's this, the, the, the Christ pictures the man who, who, from whom devils were expelled, and they say, well, now, where are we going to go? And they say, well, let's get seven more devils and go back and invest this man all over again. <laughs> so then a, a, an exorcist who would lose might himself uh, be... He, nev he never recovers, Art, to break in on you. He never recovers. Never? Never. I've seen this happen, and it's too much for the human frame. Because involved in a failure is some act of pride. It's some very bad mistake. And uh, I've seen pathetic failures and monumental failures. Well then, um, how and who chooses those who would perform an exorcism, Father? Well, once upon a time, when in the Catholic Church, uh, the science of exorcism, the skill, the, the, the exercise of exorcism, was something passed on very carefully from generation to generation within each diocese, there was a school of thought. Uh, an old exorcist would talk with the bishop and say, well, I know young father so-and-so, and he seems to have the character and the disposition to pick up where I leave off. And he would train this young man over years. Uh, Father, I'm, I'm going to ask you, I'll tell you what, uh, I, I want to get through this. Go ahead and remove our little experiment and remove it, and we're just going to try to have to ask you to, uh, if possible, stay away from uh, the phone by about a couple of inches, and when you do, everything's just fine. How is that now? God, that's wonderful. Okay, uh, we'll stay right there. Okay. <laughs> and out if I don't, you say, Malachi, attention, and I will immediately attend to it. All right. Um, at any rate, uh, so they pick a young... Yeah, priest. they used to. Nowadays, it's much more haphazard art because there is no continuing school of study of this. Many bishops do not believe in the devil. Many priests do not believe in the devil or in hell or in the demon or the demonic. They explain it away by, uh, in terms of psychology or in terms of disease. How can that be, Father, uh, if there is God? Lo a loss of faith. Faith, art, our body politic, the Roman Catholic organization, as an organization, we have a crisis of faith amongst the prelates, amongst our leaders. That is our, that is the big crisis of the Roman Catholic Church. And after all of these um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, yep. how can that be and why is that? Well, that is the prime question being asked today. And... Uh, Catholics will say, when they study it, they will say, well, God is not giving the grace, his grace, his favor. There's a, 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 an entity, a thing he gives 
called grace. It helps you to overcome temptation. It helps you to be good. It helps you to help your fellow man and to do your duty. If he withdraws that grace, and it's a supernatural entity, it's a supernatural ability, if he withdraws that from you because you're unworthy of it, then, my friend, you can't act virtuously. You fall. And the terrible thing is that once you lose that faith, once you lose that grace, you don't get it back automatically by saying, help me. You don't. Well, Father, if this is happening to the church, yes. and if the need for exorcisms has arisen 800%... I know. I know. You can picture our difficulty, Art. Then you've got, you've I, the picture. I picture a war underway, uh, one that at least at present we don't seem to be winning. That is about the lugubrious... The, the way you should state this very lugubrious fact. There is an intense war, and we are losing battle after battle. Now... We have a promise from Christ that ultimately we will win the war, or he will win it. But we're losing battle after battle. And it's, it's obvious in everyday happenings, and it's obvious in the way our prelates and some of our priests are behaving, and in the dissolution of what was once a monolithic um, uh, institution, an organization. Now, all the while, I'm talking about the organization art, the actual organization. Yes. Once upon a time, it was, it was the premier monolithic organization which withstood everything for 2,000 years. It is no longer there. We are in deep doo-doo. We really are. I make a joke about it because it's a very painful fact for me. Such a fast fall, such a quick change. It took nearly 30 years ostensibly since 1965 for this disruption to take place but now we know that the the rot the change started way back at least 100 years ago a real rot uh is there a marker is there a, a point or was there an occurrence that marked that change yes uh, there was a meeting in rome from 1962 to 1965 called the Second Vatican Council. A council in the church is a gathering in of all the bishops. And there were 2,800 bishops at that particular meeting for three years. They came for sessions in the autumn and the spring, each of those years, 62, 63, 64, and 65, under a pope called Pope John Twenty-Third, Fat, roly-poly, genial John Twenty-Third, the good Pope John, as they called him. Yes. And the result of that meeting was this sudden hurricane of change and abandonment of what had been done for 1,500 years. 1,500 years, Art, the change was so violent. 1,500 years. And, I mean, for instance, you take small things that happened, like there was an order of nuns teaching nuns in the west coast of America. It had, I think, 49 or 59 schools for girls. It had 600 nuns. The effect was to disband the entire order and close all the schools. And they took to rational psychology instead of religion. And they ceased to be nuns. They abandoned their vows. They walked away. What, what, what in the world would lead them to that change? I mean, what internally went on? What sequence of events unfolded that... that... They brought in psychologists who analyzed and pointed out to them that they were very unhappy women. They were unfulfilled. Un they, were, they weren't married. They'd taken vows of poverty and celibacy and obedience. 
and they were not living like normal human beings, enjoying themselves and uh, 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 tasting life to the full. And so they all abandoned it. Six hundred. That's absolutely incredible. It is, and the, the psychologists who brought that around have written it up recently in a report and said we are to blame for that. We to, were, to blame? Yeah, we are to blame because we 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 we, we went in, we treated them in such a way that they were uh, too weak, uh, too uninstructed. They fell for what we said as a solution. And they walked away from all religious life. Uh, that implies that their motivation was not pure, that they were just doing this as a test to see if they could destroy their faith. That's right. That's right. It does, it does say that. These psychologists are very repentant now. They say we destroyed an entire school system. We destroyed an entire way of life, religious way of life, which produced saints. And zealous people that did an awful lot of good to so many families, Catholic and non-Catholic, and we didn't know what we were doing. We were experimenting with the human, what they call the, the human potential. Their, their argument with the nuns was, you must, you must fulfill your total potential. And uh, fulfilling their total potential meant that they laid aside their religious habits and they got married or had dates. Sure. And uh, went through the normal crisis, but the result was that they lost the grace of uh, their religious vocation and closed their schools. They closed all the schools. The potential for human evil never ceases to amaze me. I know. <laughs> it's fantastic. And the point is that uh, the potential was there. And now that's only one example. I mean, that's, that is only one example. For instance, uh, in that year alone, 1968 alone, there were 300 and, uh, I think it was 48 annulments, marriage annulments. That is, Rome decided that certain people had not been really married. They could consider themselves separate and go off and form a new marriage. There were 340-something, 48. I think I'm going to make a round figure 340 in 1968. The numbers are changing quickly. Father, relax. A man who has a...